Welcome to the profoundly pointless Thanksgiving special. I love to take a take a walk, take a gander into somebody's mind and actually find out what makes them titillated and then explore that more. I think the most uh the longest period I slept in um 32 days was two hours. There are professional money launderers who um, have clients all over the world. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So every year at this time, we release a Thanksgiving episode. But this year, we wanted to do something different. Because we've picked up so many new listeners over the last couple of months, we wanted to really showcase what Profoundly Pointless is all about. But we also wanted to thank all of the listeners who have stuck with us and been with us since the beginning. So what we're doing is releasing some bonus content from some of our most popular episodes. I want to start out with erotic hypnotist, Glitter Goddess. Thinking is overrated. Now is the time to relax, the time to feel. What is erotic hypnosis? I'd say it's a journey that you can take with somebody else. And it's kind of like if you can imagine like a guided meditation, but you're bringing in the elements of sexualness. So you're exploring an intimate kind of world with somebody. Like what's the sexual part of it? Is it the hypnosis itself? Or is it getting somebody into a state where they can kind of be relaxed? Well, hypnosis itself can be a fetish of its own. And it can also be added to any sort of proclivity or curiosity that someone has. And so I'll ask them questions and learn a few things about them. So I kind of know where to guide things. I'm also a dominant person. So I'm really leading that experience. And then there's no wrong way for the person who's receiving to then just lay back, relax, see where the journey takes us, add in elements. So they're not just a total bystander. It's actually something that we end up creating together, but it really seems like I'm doing all of the talking, all of the working, all of the playing, maybe even a little manipulation, things like that. Now, is this kind of a, I don't know if the right word is fetish or kink or whatever the right word would be. Is this an offshoot of something else or is this kind of like, this is its own thing? I think it's really its own thing. I mean, the weirdest thing for me, which is the most enjoyable part about my work is that so many things in the world can be a turn on for people. And so for some people that totally like grosses them out, like, oh my God, a chair could turn someone on or like, you know, like, shouldn't we have this all a little bit more controlled? But for me, I'm like, I love to take a, take a walk, take a gander into somebody's mind and actually find out what makes them titillated and then explore that more the thing that i wonder is like how do you how did you find this how do people like discover this about themselves because it doesn't seem like the thing that like right it's not on the front page of hub so to speak it was hugely popular when i first started getting started being a dominatrix and i honestly cannot remember how i began doing it it was just natural. It felt like something that I would all like 
that I've just always done. Is there kind of like a typical clientele? I know that everybody can be different, but would you say that like, all right, well, they fit this general kind of a pattern? Yeah, yeah. I would say my typical clientele would be somebody who has tried out what is supposed to be a satisfying, normal sexual experience and has just found that to be not as satisfying as what other guys seem to talk about. So it's like going out and meeting girls and having sex like with somebody that they might meet at a bar and Or maybe even they've tried, maybe they've been married or had several girlfriends and have really tried to find like a connection through all the things that we're supposed to be satisfied with in life. And that, or at least society says we're supposed to be satisfied by that. And it just hasn't met those kind of expectations. And then they start to veer a little bit. Oftentimes they might be searching things for their like porn keywords and one thing leads to another. Maybe they find me. And they realize that they can bring exactly who they are to the table. And that's one thing that's so important to me is like being, being that person in someone's life where they don't have to be embarrassed of who they are. They don't have to be any different than who they are. They don't have to pretend like they're not turned on by the things that do light them up. Um, and they don't also have to pretend to be a sort of alpha, masculine, in charge, kind of person. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, we've heard this like phrase, I think a lot like toxic masculinity, this sense of like this overbearing, maybe like forceful kind of a guy. And I think it leaves um, men in general in in society now, like in a really tough position because you're, you're expected to be so many things, but those things that you're expected to be are never the same thing. So it's like, everybody would have a different perspective on how you're supposed to be as a man. And I find that exhausting even to think about, much less having to live that. So part of what's really important to me is to create that safe space where it's like, look, exactly how you are is is perfect to me. Like exactly who you are is is who I want to get to know. When your clients come to you, are they... I don't want this to sound like a judgment call, right? It's more just kind of understanding where people are coming from. Are they hesitant about it? Are they embarrassed about it? Are they like ashamed about it? Are they kind of like, this is what I like and give me some of that, Or right? That is a super good question because it actually, it's across the board. It's all of those things that you mentioned. And I've been doing it enough years now that like, it's pretty common for me to take a call because I'm on some platforms where like, I can just turn my line on and I can get a call from anybody. And so I just pick up the phone and I'm like, okay, where's this going to go? Who is this that I get to explore with? And, and it is often that they're like, goddess, I've been watching your videos for years. I have never gotten the courage to call, but today I saw your line was on and I just, I don't even know what to say. I just wanted to say hi and thank you. And like, that just melts me because I'm just like, I'm so honored. Um, Of course, that's just such a thrill for me. Like being a dominant woman, like here, it's like, I I didn't even know that this person had been spending years watching my videos and then I get to talk with them. It's so exciting. I've always wondered what that was like, right? Like in the sense that how people like yourself, like, is that weird? Because you know what people are doing. Oh, yes. And I love that. What about it? Like, do you like the attention necessarily? Or is it just like you like that somebody's doing that to you? Or like, what about it 
is your cup of tea? That is also a great question. Um, I, I love the attention. I love the admiration. I love the lust. Um, I think I'm also, I, I know I, it's not that I think I know I'm a bit of an exhibitionist. Um, I think it's just a part of who I am for, for a typical session or is session the right word? I don't know. Yes. Okay. For like a typical session, like how, what do you do? What do they do? Like, how does, can you walk me through like the process? Like, how does it go? I think the session just begins. Sometimes we'll chit chat about life. Sometimes, you know, something will come up and we just end up talking about really whatever, whatever's there. It's just, it's so different from call to call. And that's part of also what makes it such a joy to, to explore. Some people are already completely turned on by the time I get them on the phone. So at that point, there's no chit chat about straight to it, right? Other than just like (laughs) straight to like, wow, this is the good stuff. Okay. But, but again, even getting to know each other and having those kinds of conversations, that's, that's just a different kind of good stuff. (laughs) I hope that doesn't sound like a cop out thing. It's just, I have a lot of varied interests. Sometimes I'll end up talking about like, um, you know, specific kinds of, of music and like these different nuance, like nuances of music that we have in common that we really like and, you know, I think it's just like meeting a friend. It's just a different way to connect. Yeah. Then, then we might be used to. Then, like, how does it go once you kind of get to the getting? That's part of what the hypnosis helps with. So it's like, okay, we might have been chatting for a while and getting to know each other, and then that's where maybe my dominant side will come out more, and I'll say something like, you know, it's okay. So now I'd actually like to hypnotize you. Are you ready to to relax for me? So then we'll find a place to lie down, get comfortable, have hands free for, you know, more fun occasions than just holding a phone. And, and then we'll get started. And that's where I just completely relinquish the person I'm talking with from any need to say anything, do anything. Their job is to just purely relax and listen to my voice and just to allow the experience to, to happen, to unfold. If you want to check out the full episode That's Erotic Hypnotist Glitter Goddess. So right now, our next guest is in the process of circumnavigating the world. And he's doing this sailing all by himself. This is solo sailor, Sailor James, explaining what it's like to sail across the ocean all by yourself. Even more so with solo sailing, fatigue is a very dangerous aspect. Um because then you can mess up and a mess up at sea, especially if you're alone could mean your death. So how do you go about doing that? Right? Like, do you have to just be alert 24 hours a day, the entire time that you're going generally on my passage, the way I do it when I'm, when I'm at sea and I'm not coastal cruising is I would start my night shift around 9 PM and I would set an alarm for the top of the hour for every hour. And um, I would lay down, hopefully sleep through the hour, and then my alarm goes off. I would get up, go on deck, look for ships, slowly scan the horizon, check the sails, check the course, make sure I'm still going the right direction, and um, carry on my way. And um, there's a thing called uh, a wind vane self-steering system, which is all mechanical, doesn't take any electronics. And it... um, you basically, you set your course and you activate this wind vane and um, it steers the boat for you. So it removes you from having to hand steer the boat. But you wouldn't ever want to like just sleep for eight hours straight with the boat going like, all right, well, I pointed it east. It's not a good idea. 
because usually the sea conditions change, the wind conditions change. And um, so your winds are, your sails might, you know, backwind, you start pointing in the wrong direction. You know, it's like you're sailing eight hours in the wrong direction is not going to help your final cause. So um, I think the most, uh, the longest period I slept in um, 32 days was two hours. What does that do to your body? Um, I lost 20 pounds. <laughs> um, also the conditions at sea, it's really hard to cook. So you kind of eat pretty, pretty simply. Um, and then, yeah, you get into a rhythm with it because it's not just nighttime. So like I don't drink any caffeine when I'm at sea, like I don't have coffee. I love coffee on land and, and when I'm like, you know, just near shore, but I don't drink any caffeine when I'm at sea so that in the middle of the day, if I can lay down, then I can sleep, you know, so you just kind of grab rest wherever you are. So for somebody who's like never been out on the open ocean, what's, what's it like compared to like, how is the open ocean different from being near shore? Well, for one thing, you can be rescued near shore. Yeah. Um, that's like, you know, in the middle of the ocean, there is no rescue or, or if you're lucky, you might get rescued by a cargo ship, but then you, your vessel or your home or your boat has to be sunk so that it's not a danger to other boats navigating in the same waters. Um, so that thought, you know, it's not like a helicopter can just come pick you up when you're a thousand miles from shore. So that is wildly different. Um, but on the flip side of that is there's nothing more dangerous to a boat than the shore. So when, like when I'm navigating close to shore, if I'm doing overnight passages, like nonstop overnight passages, I'll sleep in the cockpit outside um, with my alarm set for every 15 minutes because that's about 20 minutes is about the time a ship will reach you from the horizon if it's traveling at full speed. So about every 15 minutes, you pop up, look around for ships and then lay back down. Um, and even with AIS, because a lot of small fishing boats don't have that. And if somebody's on that boat, not on watch, they're on autopilot, they could easily run you down. So, and sailboats do not move very fast, you know, because it is right around the pace of like walking swiftly or walking slowly, depending on the wind. But I mean, that's it. That's as fast as you're going. You're only going like three or four miles an hour. Oh yeah. Even if the wind's like whipping, you're still yeah, just so like poking the, around. The whole the whole speed on my boat, I think, is like seven knots, which is like you know, it's not one for one for like miles per hour, but um, it's not very fast. Yeah, and it's like that's yeah. And I mentioned that I said you know, like my passage here from Los Angeles would have been the equivalent to me driving from Los Angeles to Pittsburgh at three miles an hour, basically. I thought you were going a lot faster than that. I assumed that like, all right, you get out in the open ocean, they're probably doing like 30 or 40. You're doing like five. That's like those giant cargo ships, they max out at 30 knots. Why didn't I think that everything was so much faster? Yeah, but like fancy race boats, like for the America's Cup, they have these boat, these sailboats that look like spaceships almost. Those things will go like 40 knots or, you know, those, those things are totally bananas, but they don't go long distances really at that speed. You know, I have never but, understood why it's knots and not just miles per hour. Back in the age of sail, the way they would determine the speed of the ship is they had a log that was tied to a rope and the rope had at specific lengths had knots tied in it and they would turn an hourglass over, throw the log in and then count how many knots went through their hand until the hourglass ran out. And then they would write down how many 
not in the logbook. That makes perfect sense. You know, for like the water conditions out on the open ocean, is it smoother? Is it wavier? Is that the right word? Like, what's it yeah, like? It, well, it all depends on almost everything depends on the wind. So the swells generally, if there's no wind, they're very long rollers. So the the swells are long, and you know, it's like long swells are not dangerous. So I've sailed in you know twenty foot seas in the North Atlantic but they were long periods and they, so they're not breaking waves. So they're not scary. They're intense to see 20 feet hill of water behind you. And then suddenly you're on top of it. And then the captain who taught me to sail in Scotland, Celia Bull, she told me about, she sailed to Antarctica, done Cape Horn, all the stuff. She sailed to South Georgia on a boat as crew. And she saw 60 foot waves in the North, uh, Southern ocean where there were 60 foot mountain, mountain, 60 foot tall mountains of water. <laughs> And then they were on top of a 60 foot mountain of water looking down into the trough 60 feet. So if they're long period and they're not breaking, then they're not dangerous. But here in the Pacific, the it's um it's a very calm ocean primarily, other than like if you're in a hurricane track or if you're in the North Pacific. And if basically it's like it, any ocean in the correct season is fine. If you're out of the if you're sailing in waters in the wrong season, it's not fine. But the Pacific is very mild compared to the Atlantic. And that's because the Atlantic is specifically like the Caribbean stuff is so the water so shallow that it supercharges these storms. And that's when all the hurricanes happen there. But there we don't have like hurricanes in Los Angeles. So when you look kind of forward and, and then like the in the goal of what's the word circumnavigating, like, is there a spot where you're like, ooh, I'm not ready for this place yet or this is going to be um, this is going to be the test. Yeah, Cape Horn. The, the, my eventual goal, I planned around Cape Horn, which is the most dangerous place in the world. And it's killed thousands and thousands of sailors over the years. Um, eventually, I'll around Cape Horn. And it just depends. And that's the place where you just have to have all your ducks in a row. And, and a number of small boats have done it. And again, it's like waiting out weather windows, you know, and not, you know, that's a lot of it is like, waiting for weather um but with today's technology it's easier to know what weather's going to be so it's easier to sort of like know what you're getting yourself into um but yeah that cape horn will be the spot that's like and uh, the indian ocean too but crossing the indian ocean from southeast asia to africa will be um a challenge but again it's a matter of like going in the right season why is that such a what what makes that place such a, a rough rough area yeah, I don't, I don't know. Probably I'm not specifically educated on that fact or, or that reason, but I would guess it it's in relation to, to like Africa and the land masses around there that just creates, you know, like these storms that are pretty gnarly. The Indian Ocean's pretty gnarly. Um, so yeah, I would just imagine it's weather systems that are in relation to the Southern Ocean on one side and Africa, the African continent on the other side. That was Solo Sailor, Sailor James. That honestly is one of my favorite episodes because I never realized just how much went in to sailing. And it really showcases both the beauty and the danger of the ocean. Going to another kind of danger, a criminal danger. This is money laundering expert Professor Moyara Rusin on the money laundering capital of the world. 
Are there certain places that are notorious for money laundering? Uh, it depends on what stage of the money laundering process we're talking about. In the early stages of the money laundering process, you're going to see that in places where there's a lot of criminal activity. If it's using shell companies, for example, in the layering process, which is like the middle stage of money laundering, one of the easiest places to set up a shell company anonymously is in the United States, unfortunately. Nevada and Wyoming, uh, in particular, Delaware as well, but Delaware, I've heard that they are starting to collect beneficial ownership. London is still a really easy place to set up a shell company. And, and money launderers use those shell companies all the time. The more, the better. And uh, sometimes they'll just use it for a short period of time and, and then set up a new shell company. So I would say, you know, the U.S. and the U.K., unfortunately, are uh, places that are aiding and abetting um, this type of criminal activity. But you'll also see um, money laundering take place in jurisdictions where uh, there aren't many regulations. Um, so, for example, um, cryptocurrency exchanges that are, you know, licensed and registered uh, in you know Europe and North America are really well regulated, and they have compliance departments that do you know criminal investigations all the time. But a cryptocurrency exchange in Moldova, you know, they're probably not well regulated. When we talk about money laundering, like who is who's primarily doing this? There are professional money launderers who um, have clients all over the world and they charge commissions of as little as 5% to as much as 20%. We're seeing more of that. We're seeing people who are specializing in money laundering, whereas in the past, a lot of these criminal organizations would try to do it themselves. There are, for example, individuals who operate so-called mixing services where they're basically laundering cryptocurrency on, on your behalf. Yeah. And you know, that that's also money laundering. So how much money gets laundered every year? Well, for the past decade and a half or so, this number has been floated around that one to 2% of global GDP um, is laundered every year, which would be between one and $2 trillion a year. That's just a stab in the dark. Somebody pulled that number out of there. You know what? I don't know that we really know how much money is laundered, but what you would need to, to get a bead on is you know, how much criminal activity is out there. How much of that needs to be laundered? Probably 80% of all the criminal money out there needs to be laundered. The remaining 20% is cash that people just use for their everyday expenses. But if I'm a criminal and I want to buy a house or a luxury yacht or you know something substantive, I can't buy it um, with the dirty money or the dirty crypto. I need to launder it first before I can you know, live the luxurious lifestyle I want to live. Is it hard to launder money or is it hard to launder a lot of money? It's hard to launder a lot of money. 
it's complicated and it also depends on what you're starting with. So for, for example, if you're starting with cash, that is tricky and it's really hard to launder um, a lot of cash because, you know, just putting it into a bank, for example, without it being noticed um, is really hard. I think that the TV show you referenced earlier, Ozark, is a perfect example of that. One way you can do it is try to co-mingle the dirty cash with legitimate businesses. Um, so Marty is buying all these legitimate businesses, a, a strip joint, um, a funeral parlor, and you know, re restaurants um, that take in a lot of cash are useful for that if it is, if you're laundering cash. Are there telltale sign like, oh, that's a sign, like things that you can look at and spot that money laundering is happening? Oh, yes, yes. In fact, um, but it's going to depend on what type of crime we're talking about. So there are red flag indicators of, um, you know, financial crime transactions related to uh, human trafficking, for example, for instance. Um, you know, cre credit card transactions, for example, that are indicative of human trafficking. Um, there are red flag indicators of um, um, trade-based money laundering, you know, over-invoicing or under-invoicing or false invoicing of trade transactions. There are red flag indicators of um, uh, money laundering associated with um, proliferation, um, WMD proliferation financing. And so it really depends on, you know, what type of crime we're considering. The red flag indicators are going to be very different. And so as an investigator, you have to basically study what all those different red flag indicators are. For a specific example, let's say a cartel, what would those red flags be in that situation? If it is, let's say it's um, cash sales, which, you know, it's still happening. <clears throat> People are still using cash to pay for drugs. Um, although some of that activity has migrated to um, the dark web. But, you know, street sales for drugs are still often in cash. And when they try to deposit that cash with a bank, let's say, uh, they're going to have different front company accounts that they might deposit that money into. But they're also going to try to deposit it underneath that $10,000 threshold. If you deposit more than $10,000 cash, then you have to fill out what's called a currency transaction report. And it's, it's a pain in the neck. And it asks you for a lot of information. And you have to provide your identification and you know, nobody wants to do that, especially not a criminal. Uh, so they make those deposits under $10,000. But let's say that, you know, you don't want to deposit $9,999, right? That's going to be obvious and, and raise red, you know, red flags. Um, so you're going to deposit, you know, on Monday, you're going to deposit, you know, $5,671. And on Tuesday, you're going to deposit $7,823. And on Wednesday, you're going to deposit $6,524, et cetera. And you're going to go to the bank and saying, yeah, these are the 
cash receipts from my restaurant chain or, you know, whatever your excuse is, but it's going to look suspicious um, that you are making all of these multiple deposits between, you know, two and $10,000. And unless you've been doing that for the past 20 years and everybody knows about your successful restaurant chain, um, when COVID happened and every, all the restaurants shut down, that was a big problem. You know, <laughs> the money launderers couldn't use restaurant receipts anymore as, as, you know, excuse, an excuse for depositing dirty cash. So it, you know, there, there's that. And, you know, they're also going to, a good bank will also look into your restaurant. That was Moyara Rusin. If you check out that episode, the detail that she goes into about where money laundering in, is going in the future is really interesting. Now let's go back to the past with particle physicist James Beecham explaining the latest theory on how we all got here. Well, then how did it? Right. Let's 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 go into the let's go into the big question that everybody always wonders. Right. So then how did it get here? Yeah, we we do we do know a lot about that. In fact, that's one of the one of the great successes of modern science, right? Is the fact that we do know a very large amount of the history of the universe with a few kind of key gaps along the way that we're filling in now. And eventually you go all the way back closer and closer to something known as T equals zero, the beginning of the universe. Everything had to have at some point had to have been packed into a tiny, dense little point that then started to expand. And we can go in that we actually know quite well about our universe from now, way, way, way back to when the universe was about, I guess, 10 to the power minus, I don't know, minus 15 seconds old, 10 to the power, power minus 20 seconds old, something like that. So if you have 0 0.000, 25 zeros, and then a one, that number of seconds. But that's not enough for us, right? As physicists, we're like, okay, well, what, what was before that? What happened before 10 to the power minus 15? That's basically what we do. When you build enormous machines like the Large Hadron Collider, what you're doing is you built when you build a larger machine of higher energy, you're actually looking farther back in time. However, if you then ask the question, which I think is kind of what you're asking, what was before that? Like, where did all this stuff come from, right? Where did it all come from? Exactly. That's a huge open question. That is an open question for science. Um, we do not have an answer for that. We have a lot of really fascinating kind of edge of knowledge uh, speculation about what, you know, where this kind of universe could have come from. Because at the end of the day, it's also related to, it's related to a question that I think about a lot. It's weird because our universe is not just expanding. It's not just enormous and empty and wonderful and curious inducing, curiosity inducing and just like kind of gobsmacking the cool in all ways. It's also super weird because our universe is kind of filled with magic numbers. What I mean is that there are constants of nature that are just kind of numbers that are put there that we measure that we have no particular way to explain why those numbers are what they are. So I'll give you an example. In our equations for gravity, there's always this G factor, which is something we just measure. It's like, it's not, nothing that comes from a theory. So why is that number the way it is? There's no, there's no explanation. There's no mechanism. And physicists, we love mechanisms. That's what we're looking for. It's like, it's not enough. So some people are like, okay, maybe the reason we have these particular numbers, these magic numbers in our universe, 
Maybe the reason is that our universe is actually nothing special. And in fact, these numbers could be something on a very large range of uh, values. In fact, a nearly infinite range of values of that number. And in fact, all of these other values, in fact, do exist as the correct values in other universes in a multiverse. But that's kind of an end run around the question, what was before the Big Bang? So this is this is a this is a safe space here what is your most outlandish theory most physicists we're totally obsessed with outlandish theories we we are trying desperately to find answers to these questions that have been sometimes open questions for like a hundred years like however there is one theory that's not mine that i find fascinating from a kind of philosophical and also scientific perspective our universe seems to follow certain kinds of mathematics really, really, really well. So it starts to make us think that maybe humans did not invent mathematics. Maybe humans discovered mathematics. Maybe mathematics is the actual underpinnings of everything around us in existence. Maybe our universe is secretly made of math, secretly fundamentally made of math. So is it, I'm guessing that a part of that potential theory that's not worked out right yet would be like, well, how can the universe be made up of something that doesn't physically exist? Well, that's exactly. You're asking a really key philosophical question here. What does it mean for something to physically exist? Oh, crap. <laughs> when you get down to such a small level, this thing called quantum physics takes over and quantum physics has a very profoundly different way of treating what stuff is at the smallest possible scale. So a, an electron is not best modeled as a chunk of something moving through space. It's actually best modeled as a little kind of wobbly packet of probability. And this it's actually like a little wave packet, something that's sort of vibrating constantly. So once you do that, you end up with this thing that's like a little wave packet moving through the universe. You then start asking questions. In fact, you're not just asking questions. Part of the mathematics of quantum quantum physics, they indicate that there's a lot of things about the universe at the smallest possible scales that are not intuitive to you and I. It's like we talked about earlier. We evolved in this very kind of friendly conditions, and that's not the way that the universe works at the smallest possible scales. That was particle physicist Dr. James Beecham. If you want to listen to that entire episode, we talk about so many different things from black holes, dark energy, dark matter, time travel. It's really interesting. And he does a very good job of explaining it in a way that 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 I understood. And that's that's saying something when it comes to space stuff. On a much more basic level, let's get into some sex education with sex toy designer Mike Blacksmith explaining exactly how sex toys are made and why some colors are way more popular than others. How do you make sure the toys are going to fit people's bodies? Do you have to like measure people's parts? So we'll prototype a toy, right? We'll go through the whole process of manufacturing, essentially. We'll sculpt the toy. We still sculpt toys out of clay. We sculpt them digitally in CAD. Um, we sculpt them in 3D modeling software um, that's used in the animation world so they can get really skin texture and look really real. Um, and then we'll make the version of the toy and we'll send it to 10 to 20 people that we believe that, you know, they're they're 
their personal human form factor is larger than average. And we'll send those we'll send those out and we'll get feedback in a week or two. And they'll say, hey, worked for me too long. Um, worked for me too short. Worked for me too small a diameter. Not enough curve. And so we'll, then we'll make the changes right in the in the sculpture and the design. And we'll retool it. And we'll send it back out to those people. Here are your changes. What do you think? Oh, yeah, that that if it was just a little shorter. And if we get a consensus, right, we, we get this consensus so it works with a variety of body types, a variety of things, but it hits its intended purpose, then we go to final tooling and we bring the toy to market. Again, that's how we do it. And it's not designed for a retail shelf at Tannis. It's designed for the human body. It's designed to be played with um, and feel freaking amazing. Is it harder to design toys for men or women? In the 60s, men were the largest, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, men were the largest demographic of purchasing adult toys. And they're still probably 50%, whether they're purchasing it for their partner or um, or not. Men are, men are a lot easier to satisfy because once, once that gets going in the human brain, it's they're just on and ready. Uh, women have become... They are savvy shoppers. Uh, even getting feedback from reviewers, because you could send a toy to a bunch of guys, and what do you think? Oh, it's fucking great, right? Versus uh, you send it to women, and you're like, hey, the curve could be a little deeper. The toy could be a little longer. It could be a little less in diameter, right? Because men buy toys for women. They think that all women want these big, huge toys because I can't satisfy her. She needs a bigger dick. Um, and that's not the case at all. Uh, best-selling toy for men, best-selling toy for women. I'm going to answer this as a. I'm going to answer this as a industry broad, um, not just my company. Um, the best-selling sex toy for uh, women, I believe, has always been the rabbit, and I think you know you saw that from the the TV show. Um, but the rabbit is probably the number one selling sex toy for women. Um, not necessarily that it works the best. There's some great rabbits out there, but they're very far and few between. Um, and uh, best-selling sex toy for a man, a man would probably be, in my, for me, it's definitely the cock, our, our small cock rings, our super soft cock rings. You can put those on when you're art. Um, and then and plugs as well. The 60s, men were the largest, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, men were the largest demographic of purchasing adult toys. And they're still probably 50%, whether they're purchasing it for their partner or um, or not. Men are, men are a lot easier to satisfy because once, once that gets going in the human brain, it's they're just on and ready. Uh, women have become... They are savvy shoppers. Women are the people that know about uh, phthalates, uh, cadmium, bad things in their sex toys. Um, so, and they're and they're pretty specific of what they want for the human body, for their body. Um, and you know, women care much more about color. A guy doesn't give a shit, right? Uh, right? I mean, women want women know what they want, and they're much more savvy and much more knowledgeable. Um, about their purchases. So definitely designing a toy for a woman, uh, even getting feedback from reviewers, because you could send a toy to a bunch of guys and what do you think? Oh, it's fucking great, 
right? Versus that you send it to women and you're like, hey, the curve could be a little deeper. The toy could be a little longer. It could be a little less in diameter, right? Because men buy toys for women. They think that all women want these big, huge toys because I can't satisfy her. She needs a bigger dick. Um, and that's not the case at all. Is there a color that people seem to like more than others? Purple by far across the board for female toys is the number one selling color and red and black for men. Now, I'm not saying that other colors don't sell, but the variance of purple, literally 10 to 1 for female toys is purple. Black uh, usually outsells uh, red in the men's community 2 to 1. What's the worst selling color? Green. Green. Yeah, or like, yeah, green. Green or dull brown or, yeah, these sorts of things. But green is by far the worst. I mean, you think about it. You're, you're having sex with a zombie, I guess. Are skin tones popular? We make a prosthetic device called a packer. Um, and it's for people who want to put a bio, walk around with a bio male organ in their pants to feel more true to their soul, um, which they have every right to do. Um, and <clears throat> so we make this, we make this, and so we make it in three skin tones. Um, but one of our number one sellers of that is actually in a purple, just because it's like, look, I, I don't, I want to feel it. But I don't necessarily need to exactly replicate a skin tone. It kind of just says, this is fucking me. I'm sorry. This is me. Um, I'm, I'm sporting purple, man. It's my, they're called Packers. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sporting purple. I'm packing purple. I don't need to pack some stupid skin tone. I got purple in my pants. And I think that's really fun, man. I think it's really cool. I think actually skin tones... They're down there. I don't think people are necessarily as into, you know, it's again, that's a male question. You know, if you're a female interviewer, you'd be asking me a lot of different questions. But a male buys a toy thinking that it's something that, you know, my partner is missing. Um, and it needs to be real and it needs to be larger than me or it needs to look real. That, that's what my wife is missing. But if you literally pulled women on which has been done by us but if you were to go out and pull women on what they like it's going to be a lot smaller than you think it's going to be smoother than you think it's going to be so not representative so is this industry fundamentally different than other businesses or is it a business at the end of the day it's not what you think you know everyone thinks that i sell my soul to the devil and i'm going to make millions of dollars well the reality is is it's manufacturing straight up you have to supply a product um, that the customer wants you have to provide service that the customer needs you have to stay on top of technology to provide the customer with the service that they i mean it's the you deal with supply chain you deal with raw materials you it is literally the same except when you walk in the back of my building the shape of the things in the back of my building are different than the shape of the things in the back of other buildings that was sex toy designer Mike Blacksmith. If you want to really learn something about the world, he goes into all of the different kinds of sex toys and adult toys that they make. There are some things that, at least for me, like I had never even heard of, let alone thought of. Okay, now let's bring in John Shaw and get to the pointless part of the show. Where does Thanksgiving rank for you on the list of yearly holidays? It, oof. 
Now that I really, th- I might like it more than Christmas. Why? Why? Good food. Um, always good sports on. Uh, usually you're getting together uh, with family, which is nice. What percentage of your extended family, though, could you do without? Oh, I mean, <laughs> all of them. <laughs> but but like we don't we don't uh, we do more of like a friendsgiving. I'm gonna go on a limb here and say there there's added pressures to hosting a large event like Thanksgiving for expo. But it's different when you're hosting for your friends and when you're hosting for family. Well, because you have to try to like impress your family a little bit. You can't fool your friends. Yeah, I think I think Thanksgiving might be higher on my list of holidays than Christmas. If it's in my top five, it's at the very end. I'm gonna. I would say that Christmas is probably my number one. St. Patrick's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Halloween, New Year's Eve, not New Year's Day. Those would all be ahead for me. I would actually put Easter out there. I'm not a religious person, but I do like hiding Easter eggs from my young children. That's pretty fun. I would actually put it above. I would put hiding Easter eggs above Thanksgiving for me. So then what are you thankful for this year? You know, it's it's been kind of a rough year for a, for a bunch of us, but I'm thankful for just the basic stuff this year. Did you have a harder time this year than you did in 2021 or 2020? Absolutely. And it's oh my gosh, it's just it's just different, right? You I kind of liked being isolated and, and at home and, and things. Um, but in terms of toughness, you know, we went, uh, me and the family went through some things, you know, it, that we didn't go through the last two years, um, which sucked. That's why. I would make a strong argument that 2020, even though that was like the height of everything, was the second hardest year in the last three years that last year may have actually been easier than this year because like you were still going through all the stuff, but things were starting to lift. And I feel like this year is the year that everything hit everybody like, Oh fuck. I'm just tired. Well, yeah. Worn out yeah, I mean, of all you, of this. You said it perfectly. I mean, if you think back to what the last two years were 2020, in 2020, 20, or 20, 21, uh, 2021, I know, I'm drunk. Uh, which years are we now? Well, we, which years are we talking about? 2020, <laughs> go, 2021, if, if, or 2020, 2022, 2021? If you go back <laughs> to, to 2020 and 2021, uh, I mean, th- those years were some of the toughest that we'll, I mean, we'll be talking about it till the day we die, the COVID pandemic. And mind you, we're still in it, uh, but you know, whatever we've adapted, heard you mean, I don't, whatever you, I don't care what you think. Not but it is what kind it is. of like socially we aren't anymore. It's pretty exactly. rare. And, like socially, I don't think that we are. And and I think that's kind of what contributes a large part to why 2022 has sucked so much for a lot of people is, you know, it's the social aspect. You know, you didn't see your friends or, you know, clubs and bars were closed down and, you know, now, now everything's kind of back open and it's, it's, it's very, it's just overwhelming. I thought that 2020 was a unique transition period, right? Where people, everybody was just trying to figure this all out together and everybody was just kind of hanging on together. 2021, 
I don't look at as being that difficult of a year because it was kind of like you had an excuse not to do the things that you didn't really want to do. Come 2022 when everything's just, you know, bum rushes you because you're supposed to live like it's 1999. See what I did there? Um, I think the mental and social aspect, uh, we did, we don't real. I don't think we still realize how uh, how difficult those two years were. Uh, okay. You ready for your shout outs? I'm listen, I was born ready, like Bruce Springsteen sang about so many times. Was he I thought he was born to run. Well, whatever. I just kind of took that and flipped it into Or was he born in the USA? How many songs can he have about being born somewhere? He's gotta <laughs> pick one. You born to run or you born in the USA? I I I could rant about Bruce Springsteen. I won't, because no one cares. Uh but I will say I don't understand why he was like chosen as, you know, I don't know, America's rock star or whatever you want to call him. I don't get it. My dad had a pathological hatred of Frank Sinatra, which was never explained. Okay, are you ready for your – did you do your shout-outs or not no, yet? Let's I do even them. forgot. Let's do them. All right, uh, here we go. Uh, Brandon Mesa. I have to let my dog Matt while you do this. Strain. Albert Torres. Jaleel Nance, Nicole Graythorn, appreciate you. Uh, David Anslet, Vinny Camilleri, love that name. Uh, Fraser Mallet, and Drippy <laughs> Drippy Donnie. I don't know why you're Drippy, but appreciate you, Donnie. So, oh, they chose it. that name. Yeah, that they chose it, Drippy Donnie. It's not the name that I would have chosen necessarily. It's one of those nicknames you don't really want. Drippy Donnie. Yeah, yeah drippy anything probably even if, isn't good. Yeah, even if you're trying to be cool, like I got so much drip, which is like style and swag. You don't want to be drippy. Uh, all right, I got a couple of uh, bangers for you. Uh, this is more of a question just because I was talking to somebody about this, and I just want to ask you, so this is going to count. Uh, have you ever sent food back at a restaurant because it was – not cooked to the way that you wanted it to be. I have only sent things back because they had hair in it. Oh, come on. Tell can you Can you remember the story? Can you tell us? I used to work in a restaurant, right, and kind of grew up working in them. Like, this stuff happens. I'm not going to be one of those people that makes a really big deal out of something. Like, hey, it's not like somebody put it there on purpose, right? If you had, like, one hair in your food, it's like, all right. Let's just go ahead and be like, hey, can you can you fix this? But I've never sent something back because, like, this isn't cooked properly. I've sent a drink back one time where it was clear that, like, this is – there's something wrong with this. And the person tried it and was like, oh, yeah, that's not right. But other than that, I've never sent food back. Have you? Are you a restaurant Karen? I am not, actually. I – I I kind of get like you know how I've ta- how I've documented my parking lot anxiety. I get that way at restaurants, where I'll just you know, I'll just be like, uh, uh sure, I I ordered it medium, but I'll take it rare. I, I don't want to send it back. You know, I've I've never really worked in the restaurant industry, but I have to believe. Like I know what I would do if I was in a kitchen. So I don't I don't want to send anything back. 
If you're spending less than $10, don't send anything back because you're going to regret that decision. If you're spending a lot of money and something's like, I've never sent something back and like, this isn't very good. I've had lots of food that I thought this wasn't worth that price, but I feel like that's a, a living, that's a you lesson. Like you've learned not to eat there anymore. Yeah. I mean, I just, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, then I don't even think I've been at like at a fast food restaurant and, and, and been like, I need to send this back. I just what's don't. The, okay. Then what's the biggest like customer service complaint that you've ever done? Like where you like, no, this work isn't good. I'm not paying for I, this. You need to redo it. Uh, I'm all, I mean, I mean, I'm like when they effed up my windows two years ago and cut the completely wrong hole in my brick. That wasn't fun. And I had to be mean John then. Um, and then they still tried screwing me over. Did you refer to yourself as mean John? Did you have to get psyched up? No, my wife was angry enough. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, but that's probably it. I mean, I mean, that was like $2,000. Um, I mean, if we're going food wise, like I said, I've never really sent anything back. I did get. I did get a hamburger one time uh, from McDonald's. Um, somebody must have been having a real bad day because I just ordered like one of those dollar cheeseburgers. And when I opened it up, there had to have been 50 pickles on it. Sounds like a good deal. I mean, I, it looks like it looked like I like someone just took a, you know, a spoonful of pickles and just dumped the shit out of of them and wrapped it up and said, here, I, you're, I'm going to make your day pickly. Did you take the pickles off, or did you send it back? I mean, I was uh, taking them off. No, I, I walked. I walked back. I walked. Well, I was in the drive-through. I walked in and I said, "This is kind of unacceptable. I'm not the biggest pickle fan." And well, here we are. What happened? Did you get another burger? Yeah, and and I got like a. Uh, this is how old I am because this was like two decades ago. Uh, they gave me a five dollar, uh, like like uh, de- uh, not debit card, but uh, gift card to come back. I am not naturally a complainer, but I will say that people who complain, they generally do get – like you get treated better. The only thing that I used to com- really religiously kind of complain about was cable bills and only because if you called them every time every year when your renewal is up or just every time you wanted to save some money, they'll drop the price for you. But like, hey, I think it'll even. Okay, well, we'll drop the price. Call your cable company every three months. You really should. All right. So uh, what is what is better, what is worse, a sugar high – or a food coma. Well, I mean, sugar high is better than a food coma. I generally don't like the feeling of being really full on food. Yeah, you're insane. Give me a food coma every day of my life. I've had a few. Why you do you like tell. food comas? Like you're just so full and uncomfortable. No, man, you sleep. That's what. That's a, a bonus. I don't know if I can do it now because of my goddamn kids, but. You know, back when I didn't have a wife and I would go to Thanksgiving, I would just eat everything. <laughs> and then the nap that ensued was maybe one of the best naps you'll ever take. I don't really know if I've ever taken a great nap in the middle of the day. I usually wake up feeling more tired. I wake up angry. If that, I don't even know if that makes any sense. I'm waiting for you to go to your big topic thing. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, all right, so our choices this week... Uh, the frozen embryo babies, kind of a neat story. A uh, couple gave birth to twins. 
the the embryos were frozen 30 years ago. So who gave birth to the twins then? I don't know. The woman that had the embryos uh, implanted in her body. But they were her from 30 years ago? No, they were somebody else's. How old was she? I don't know. I didn't like... I didn't read the entire story. Do any research on the topics that you're... Okay, I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. The best Thanksgiving day food. <laughs> yeah, I like this move. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, I mean, look, man. There's my only thing. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in science and the scientific process. But I'm also a big believer that there's some things that you shouldn't fuck with. Right? Like, nature got this right a long time ago. And... Let's not go down that road. Like any of that kind of stuff, like selecting your baby's gender or their hair color or eye color. Like, oh, I don't think we should be messing with that kind of stuff. Like, let's you okay, should just here. leave that one alone. Fair enough. Uh, all right. So, like I said, best Thanksgiving Day food, uh, the Buffalo Snowstorm, which was incredible, the photos that came out. And I got to give a little shout out to Detroit because – they hosted the Bills game, which was moved from Buffalo. And first time, first time a real team played in Detroit. Anyways, uh, and uh, we got to see the Bills mafia up close, breaking tables and trashing the outside of the stadium. So That's that was great. Uh, but the winning uh, topic, for some reason, people like us to to talk about celebrities uh, and celebrity deaths. And uh, this one is on uh, Jason David Frank, who uh, unfortunately uh, committed suicide a couple days ago. But uh, I guess on a more positive note, he was known as the Black Ranger from the original uh, Power Rangers. I believe he was the Green Ranger. What Was he the Green Ranger? Yeah, dude. Remember? Like, this was back in the days before... People oh, really wait. like what the Black Ranger was black. I thought he was the White Ranger now that I'm thinking about. I it. believe he was the Green Ranger and then he became the White Ranger later on. How, okay. would, how well, do you feel? What do you think about like when all the Power Rangers are lining up and they've got like kind of all the representatives of different groups and they're like, well, which one's the black guy going to be? Well, the Black <laughs> Ranger. I mean, like, not being funny. Um, like, <laughs> like who do you, how who do you made make that, that call? Yeah, like. But wait a minute, is it weirder for the? What's the what's the more controversial decision for the Black Ranger to be a black guy, or for the Black Ranger to be another person of color, or to be a white person? Like, what's the more controversial decision there? For the Black Ranger I mean, I, to be a black guy, or for the Black Ranger not to be a black guy? I mean, I want to say that it doesn't matter, but let's be honest, it 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 will always matter. Um, it's probably the a white person to be the Black Ranger, I would think. Well, it would depend how like how the color scheme was going, right? But then again, like if they had a I, I white person as the White Ranger, and then like a brown person as the Brown Ranger. Then you couldn't have somebody else as the Black Ranger. But I don't think people really like. I don't think you associate Power Rangers with rep like with their their body armor colors representing, you know, an ethnicity. Like I never right, looked but at except the Black for the Black Ranger, Ranger which was like, well, 
the well, only black never, guy on the show. But I never looked. And mind you, once again, I'm a white guy, right? So maybe I'm not seeing this full circle. But like, I never looked at the Black Ranger and thought, you know, oh man, you know, he's an African American as the Black Ranger. Like he represents that community. You know what I mean? Yeah, I never thought of it like that either. I mean, to me, it's just like he's just. I mean, I was a kid, and I was just like, well, I guess he's the Black Ranger. I never yeah, I thought like, about it anymore. But I feel like adults would have had to make, like, had a big conversation about that decision. Well, do you think they did? I would Prob- doubt it. Well, back then, did. probably not. They were like, well, make him the Black Ranger, I guess. Can you name all the all the Power Ranger colors? Um I not not once it got into like the syndication territories, right, where they got fifteen different things. But if I remember right, I think there was the original was a red, blue, black, pink, and yellow, and then they expanded it to like a white and a green later on. What is ink? I don't know. Oh, I. What are you talking about? Oh, did you say pink or ink? Pink. Oh, it, I didn't hear the P. I just heard ink. Why the Ink Ranger? No. Power Rangers. Power Anyways, Rangers. Jason. Uh, Jason uh, David Frank uh, passed away. Forty-nine years old. Man. All right. R.I.P. Falling out of fame is hard for people. Nobody hand seems to handle that very well, especially if you're young. Like like Bruce Springsteen said, "Born young." Everyone's born young. <laughs> Listen, look, let's go on. Is to anybody our, uh... born old? <laughs> In my soul, maybe. You are an old soul. What's the latest book you've read on submarines? Uh, I haven't actually. Um, no submarines. Oh, okay, asshole. Uh, so our top five is in in kind of in the spirit of Thanksgiving. Most people talk about the things that they are thankful for. Our top five, though, is things we would like to get rid of. And we're not talking about like big social issues, like we want to get rid of world war or hunger or anything like that. Just personal things that we would like to get rid of. Uh, my number five are people who do not chew with their mouths closed. Yeah, I could get rid of those people. Get out of here. You ready? Oh. Get out of here. That sound is terrible. It's a terrible oh, it's sound. A terrible sound. My number five is crosswalks. I like crosswalks when I'm walking somewhere, but as a driver, I don't like crosswalks and would like to get rid of all crosswalks. Get out of the road. You're slowing down Man. traffic. All right. My number four, uh, let's get rid of non-soft toilet paper. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. You've been to too many places where they don't have soft ply, right? It's fucking sandpaper up your bung. I don't think that I have done a number two outside of my home in years. Well, that's your own fault, I guess. My number four is sad dog commercials. I think we should get rid of all sad animal commercials. We all feel for the animals. We don't need sad commercials. Yeah, for sure. That's a good one, actually. And they always seem to come on at the just the most you know random, vulnerable times, too, right? Right. 
I've got some one on YouTube that's hitting me every day. Like I see it four or five times a day. Like why do you think that I'm the ideal customer for this? Well, obviously they know what's in your heart. My number three is uh, regular silverware. We don't need six different kinds of spoons. We don't need five different kinds of forks. You can just have it all in a fork. Well, I agree. I think we should consolidate silverware. should be one piece of – it should be one utensil, maybe two, but that's it. You may need a knife or a butter knife, but you can always make like the end, the other end of this fork into some kind of knife. I don't think so. I think that you could have a spork or a spoon and a knife, but I don't think that you could really ever come. Maybe put the knife on the side of the fork. We should do that. The idea of having the little spoon or the big spoon and the little fork are ridiculous. Why do we have those? You're talking to the wrong guy. My number three is instructional work videos. The kind of like HR training videos that you have to watch, no one is paying any attention or learning anything from these. Uh, my number two are, is uh, Hallmark Holidays. What are the Hallmark Holidays? You know, like Sweetest Day, Valentine's Day, uh, you know, uh, holidays that oh. were essentially created to force you to do something. You mean like Mother's Day? Mother's Day, Father's Day, National Hot Dog Day. I mean, I agree with that, but I don't, I, the only thing, the reason that I can't really get on board with this is because I don't pay any attention to them in the first place. I mean, other than like Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day. My number two is plastic packaging, specifically that kind of plastic packaging that some things come in that you just cannot open whatsoever. You know <laughs> right? what I'm talking about? Have, yeah, you have to have scissors to open it or and a then, knife. And you always cut yourself. <laughs> For sure. There's impossible to open those. Uh, so my number one is uh, YouTubers slash influencers. I would make a serious argument that those people are now probably more famous than traditional celebrities. That's the new wave, man. Those are going to be the new wave of celebrities. Get rid of them. Uh, my number one is humidity. I would rid the world of humidity. Well, that was about the biggest wet fart of a number one you've had in a while. Oh, you don't want to get rid of humidity. Yes, but that to be number one, I mean, come on. Humidity How much of that bad? Think about all that sweating in the summer that you do. You used to live in Florida, and you're going to be okay like, oh, if I had a choice between getting rid of Instagram influencers or humidity, your choice would be like, well, let's get rid of the inf- in- Instagram influencers and keep the humidity while I sweat my ass off. Absolutely. A hundred percent. What's in your honorable mention then? Uh, what I write down? Re- reality TV shows? Uh, yeah, political, I can do that. Political ads from both parties, all parties, not just one. Uh, basically, any candy except Reese's. All Agreed. The, all the other candies are trash. Uh, the richest of the rich, like the point zero zero one percenters. Uh, and to end on a funny note, uh, people who fart in public. Why would you get rid of people who fart in public? I like people who fart in public. I think it's hilarious. You're basically getting rid of everyone. 
<laughs> There's not I, one I person who's ever not. There isn't one single person on this earth who doesn't fart in public on a daily basis. Daily basis. That's a t- that's a tough order, man. That has to be somebody. No, I don't think so. Unless you had a day where you're just not doing it. Um, my honorable mention was um, uh, I could get rid of all debate shows. Any kind of sports okay. or political debate show, I could get rid of all of those. Non-chocolate candy. I could accept cookies and cream as a flavor, a vanilla as a flavor. But anytime we're getting into like the sour or fruit flavors, I could get rid of all of those kinds of candies. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. We really do enjoy putting together these Thanksgiving specials, and we've got some exciting stuff coming up for the rest of the year. Belly Dancer, Bobsledder, Foxy Boxer. But finally, I just want to take a moment and thank everyone who listens so much for supporting this show. Not only is your support what has kept us going, but it means an incredible amount to John and I. And it's what keeps us going. So thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. If you're out there traveling, drive safe.